The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawkbox with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. So election day is finally here. Democrat Joe Biden holding a narrow lead over the president, Mr. Trump, in six swing states. That according to a CNBC change research poll, as 68% of voters say they've already cast their ballots. Tomorrow, to put an end, the president has divided this nation, banned the flames of hate. Tomorrow, to put an end to a presidency that has failed to protect this nation. President Trump calls on the Supreme Court to review a decision to count mail-in ballots arriving after Election Day, tweeting the ruling could spark violence on the streets. You've got to be careful, though, because the Pennsylvania deal with that decision, oh, you can count the ballots later on and count them whatever you'd like. No, no, we have to be very, very careful with that. That causes a lot of problems. U.S. equities start November on a strong note, while Asian stocks rally and European futures point to a higher open ahead of the polls opening stateside. Elsewhere, though, COVID infections surging by over 50,000 in one day in both France and Spain, whilst Italy considers stricter measures in a bid to get the second wave under control. We've only been talking about it for two years. Was it midterms, wasn't it? Onwards. But now Election Day is finally here in the United States. And this after an intense race between President Trump and the Democratic candidate Joe Biden. Polling stations will begin to open as early as 11 Central European time and will close as late as 3 CET tomorrow morning. Now, Mr. Biden holds a narrow lead over the president in several key battleground states. This according to a new CNBC change research poll, which has a margin of error of plus or minus 1.7 percentage points. Mr. Trump held and is holding a late night rally in Michigan uh, following a final day of campaigning where he continued to cast doubt over the vote uh, and defend his economic record. Next year will be the greatest economic year in the history of our country. So you had the last year was the best year you ever had. Before that was the best year. You had three of them with me, and then we got hit with the, uh, the plague, and then we went back to work. Under my leadership, our economy is now growing at the fastest rate ever recorded, 33.1% last week. Joe Biden has promised the beginning of a new era, highlighting the failures of the Trump administration in his last pitch to voters. We're still in the battle for the soul of America. Decency, honor, respect. Where has it gone with this president? But let me tell you something, folks. Tomorrow's the beginning of a new day. Tomorrow, we can put an end to a presidency that has left hard-working Americans out in the cold. Tomorrow, we can put an end to a presidency that has divided this nation and fanned the flames of hate. Tomorrow, we can put an end to a presidency that has failed to protect this nation. 
NBC's Alice Barr is covering the presidential campaign. She joins us from the White House now. Um, Alice, give us a a little bit of colour, if you can, on these uh, final moments of campaigning by the presidential team. Well, we've traveled back over to Capitol Hill now, but yeah, what we can tell you is President Trump has been traveling all over the place. He's had an extremely busy day as he has had an extremely busy few weeks. It's basically been his strategy to make his presence his biggest tool. You know, um, he likes to speak for himself. He likes to represent himself. And so today he made five uh, campaign stops, five rallies in four different states, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and, you know, these places that he really thinks... Well, certainly they are critical for his victory uh, potential chances. And he he is his best tool. Just put himself forward, make himself uh, make his his message known. Uh, He ended the night in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the same place where he ended uh, four years ago his campaign for the 2016 election. It was a last minute addition to the calendar back in 2016. And he's and, you know, he believes it helped propel him to that victory in Michigan, which was critical to his winning the White House four years ago. And he's hoping almost maybe like a good luck charm to end tonight in that same place and hoping that that will propel him uh, forward tomorrow. As you've pointed out, he is trailing in the polls nationally, a pretty sizable gap between himself and Joe Biden. In the battlegrounds, though, it's a lot more narrow, and that's what it always comes down to. Uh, So that's why the president has made such a point of being out there and being visible in all of those locations. And you also mentioned that he's been continuing to cast doubt on what the election results will actually be. He's specifically been speaking tonight about uh, a court ruling in Pennsylvania that decided that uh, votes that are cast before Election Day, mailed in before Election Day, will be allowed to be tallied up to three days after Election Day. President Trump uh, making baseless assertions that that's going to lead to all kinds of fraud. Um, and no matter what happens tomorrow, he seems to be trying to set the groundwork to give himself a channel forward if he's behind to try to claim that there have been uh, irregularities with the voting that could give him an- another path to keep fighting. We'll send it back to you. Alice, thank you so much for that. Alice Barr joining us from NBC from the White House. Well, let's talk about Joe Biden's campaign. He'll make four campaign stops in the battleground state of Pennsylvania today with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris making five appearances of her own. The swing state is now considered crucial by both candidates in securing a path to the White House. Former President Barack Obama will rally in Georgia. Georgia and Florida in an attempt to energize black and Latino voters. NBC's Sarah Daloff is covering the Biden campaign and joins us now from Wilmington, Delaware. And in these final moments, um, what issues is the Biden campaign focusing on? Well, good morning, Jess. The Biden campaign really hitting hard on COVID infections. They're spiking here in the United States as they are globally. And he and running mate Senator Kamala Harris are sharing their plans to get those infections and the spread under control, as well as focusing on the economy and uniting the nation. Now, leading up to election night, it is a Biden blitz with both candidates crisscrossing the country, focusing in on some of the states in particular that are considered 
considered key that President Trump won in 2016, in particular Pennsylvania. Democrats lost there four years ago by around 44 thousand votes and with 20 electoral votes up for grabs this time, it may prove decisive in this election. Uh, now, Biden's former boss, you mentioned uh, former President Barack Obama, was also on the trail as a surrogate, lending his support to the campaign. They topped off the night with a star-studded rally uh, in two cities in Pennsylvania with Lady Gaga and John Legend, among with other speakers, encouraging people, if they haven't yet, to get out and vote. Of course, record early voting turnout here in the U.S., more than 96 million ballots already cast. Now, interestingly, the candidates, the Biden team will be back out on the trail tomorrow. That is, uh, or today rather, excuse me, that's a bit of an unusual move. Uh, uh, Joe Biden will be campaigning in Pennsylvania again, Philadelphia and Scranton. Senator Harris will be in Detroit, Michigan, and both of their spouses will be lending their support as well. Everyone will meet back up here in Biden's home state of Wilmington, Delaware, where he and Senator Harris are expected to address the nation. Jess? Sarah, that's excellent. Thank you so much indeed for your report today, Sarah Daloff of NBC News. And uh, it was interesting that Sarah was there talking about uh, Mr. Biden's still campaign. I think Mr. Trump is still speaking, isn't he, in Grand Rapids, Michigan? Uh, how long has he been going? Oh, was it that there's Mr. Trump. He's been going, what, an hour now? Hour and a half? Big hour and, hour and ten minutes. I mean, I have to say, whatever you think about these candidates, and there's lots been made about the fact that it's a 74-year-old man against a 77-year-old man. My goodness me, their stamina. I mean, absolutely extraordinary. I've got to take my hat off to these gentlemen. I mean, Karen, I know we've got to talk about the markets, but <laughs> let, we can be apolitical about this. In fact, we can be pro-ageist. Yeah. They're a great advertisement for people working later in life, aren't they? They've gone to every battleground state and then they've gone back to them again, just in case, trying to pick up every last voter possible. I, I, I doff my cap to both the candidates for their stamina. There you go. That's apolitical, completely across the board. Right, these markets yesterday, Karen, quite extraordinary because I think the markets needed a bit of support after but what has been a really tough week what is it the dow was down last week over six percent the s p was down uh, over five percent the FTSE was down around about five percent so a little bit of relief for the beleaguered balls yesterday across the ball stocks like honeywell really aggressively moving uh, that was 59 points uh, on the dow interestingly what despite all this enormous political news uh, the data caught my eye and i thought the october pmis uh, were quite extraordinary as well manufacturing pmis 59.3 uh, as opposed to 55.4, the highest since 2018. <laughs> you don't care about the data, do you? There's <laughs> me going back. No, the key news today is factory orders and light vehicles. No, you don't care about that either. I'm ignoring I'm mucking around. Right, OK, 1.2% higher for the S&P. The Nasdaq, look, underperforming yet again, down up only 0.4 of 1%. Let's have a look at the Treasury, shall we? Should we have a look at uh, where the T-bonds are currently trading as well? We've got a fixed income guest talking later on who's actually very kindly mapped out for us all the different scenarios. So we'll, we'll basically just ask the very basic questions. What's the best for the bond holdings? What's the worst for the bond holdings in terms of their performance uh, under various political scenarios as well? But the five-year paper uh, trading at a mighty yield of 0.3797. The 10-year paper, 0.8518. So it continues to pick up a little bit there compared with where we have been over the last few months. And 1.6225 on the 30-year paper. We've pulled out the Russell 2K for you as well. It was quite an impressive move to the upside. 2% higher in session as well. I'm waiting. Ah, it's not there anyway. Oh, here it is. There you go. On the screen. Thank you. Right. Uh, up 1.96%, as I say. 
And we will have a look at the oil markets as well. Very interesting. I was listening to Hadley talking to uh, some oil guests uh, on Capital Connection earlier as well. But really, WTI and Brent have been beaten out of sight lately. But they did have a rally yesterday. In fact, the energy subsector of stocks outperformed the rest of the market. Uh, yes, up 3.7%. We saw WTI up 2.9% to 36.81, uh, currently trading Pretty much 36.81, 36.83. And Brent, Karen, 38.97 yesterday. So found a little bit of a bit, but still very beleaguered compared to where it was. Right. Let's uh, switch over to those Asian markets. Strong bid in the markets, picking up from that Wall Street action. You can see across the charts from uh, the Chinese markets bouncing 1.1%. Hong Kong, very strong day, uh, 570 odd points to the upside, or 2.3%. Australia are rallying on its own news. We had an interest rate cut from the Reserve Bank of Australia, taking the cash rate right back to 0.1 of a percent, down from a quarter of 1% and right on Melbourne Cup Day. Typical when you have the race that stops the nation. Yes, the horse racing event that you actually get a rate cut delivered as well. So we did have that and that moved the market higher around a three-week level we're seeing at uh, this peak today. 1.8% higher for the Cosby in South Korea. So the market's uh, very strong on Election Day in the United States. But I want to take you to the European close and this is quite uh, symbolic of what we're seeing on markets. A lot of volatility, the selling last week and the buying that's uh, coming back into the markets this week. These markets are very much snapping a five-day losing streak on the FTSE. We bounced to 1.4% as a result. But you can see much stronger levels across the board for French, uh, German and Italian stocks. So a lot of the fear in the market last week was around the coronavirus infections and the need for fresh national lockdowns. And yes, a little bit of volatility, risk on, risk off around the U.S. election. But as you can see, in the green, the dollar. This is where it gets interesting around the election. There's been a lot of net short positioning in the dollar in recent weeks. And there is a feeling that if Joe Biden does get elected, you may see further weakness in the U.S. dollar. That said, if Trump gets re-elected, you may see some strength in the dollar. That's the way foreign exchange markets are thinking about the trade so far. And this morning, you can see it is a stronger trade for some of the risk on currencies. So dollar weaker story. Sterling has bounced uh, slightly along with the euro, roughly just over a tenth of percent on those trades, but much lower levels and what we've seen in recent weeks, as you can see on those two two trades. Uh, dollar yuan is uh, 6.68, a little bit on the back foot this morning, and we are flat on dollar yen. But don't forget, Japan's out of action today, so we might be seeing a little bit of a liquidity impact, and not just on equity markets, but also across on the rest of the market. So U.S. futures, as we count down to the big event, I can't believe it's actually election day. We've spoken about it for so long. Here we go. Uh, futures suggesting a positive start to that U.S. session. So picking up on some of the green ink this morning, 170 points to the upside for Dow Jones so far. I'm glad it's not just me that walks towards that monitor, Karen. <laughs> there, our little naughty secret here is that when we're reading the futures, we have to read them off a board, don't we? And then it, I thought it was just Jeff and I that have to squint and move in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jeff can actually see distance. It's you and I that can't see her. Uh, blooming couple. <laughs> right, OK. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Uh, polls will close in the key swing states of Pennsylvania and Florida at 0200 CET tomorrow morning. Ohio's in-person voting will end at 01. 30 CT, Wisconsin 0300 CT. Let's get to Michael Starr Hopkins. He is a Democratic strategist, former campaign official to Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Nothing wrong with his eyesight, I can assure you. Good morning to you, Michael. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. What must be an ungodly hour for you as well. Look, I'm just doffing my cap at the stamina of these two gentlemen. And whatever we think about them politically, they are in their mid to late 70s and their stamina is extraordinary. The president's been speaking for donks in Grand Rapids, Michigan as well. Um, does this late campaigning, these late rallies, this crossing across to the key states, does it make any difference? Haven't Americans made up their mind? 
most Americans have made up their mind, but now we're at a point of just turnout election. This isn't about policies anymore. It's who can get the most voters to the polls. And so what we're seeing is Democrats certainly run through the finish line after 2016, but you're seeing Donald Trump do the same thing. He's got to turn out his base. And that's why he's talking at you know one o'clock in the morning in the United States about some of the, the various states that we're watching at this point. Uh, clearly a big focus on the battleground states, but also a focus on areas like Georgia, where there is a view that that may switch back to the Democrats. It's typically a Republican area. Also Texas, neck and neck, where the polling is at. What do you make of some of these uh, close races we're seeing at a state level? Look, states that haven't been in play for Democrats are now in play for the first time in 20 plus years. That shows how frustrated people are with not just the Trump administration, but the failures we're seeing with COVID. And so as millions of first-time voters come of age and get to participate in our democracy, you're seeing them specifically in places like Georgia, in Florida, in Texas. Young people who are saying, we don't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican, we care about getting things done. And so I think that's why we're seeing historic turnout numbers all across the country. Michael, very interesting. Uh, You wheel out a big gun like Barack Obama. Uh, You put him out there to work. He gets on the hustings, but he spends all of his time personally attacking the president. Comments like, uh, you know, this is the president that encouraged you to drink bleach and so on and so forth. Does this style of campaigning resonate with black Latino voters, those that the Democrats uh, are very keen to get to the ballot box? Is, Is this working, this very personal style of attack? Look, Barack Obama certainly has a a magic sense and an ability to talk to people that is pretty much unrivaled. And they've deployed him to African-American places to turn out that vote. And I think the big thing we're going to see on election day is long lines in African-American precincts. One, because of, you know, states trying to suppress the vote, but also African-Americans historically vote on election day. And so we've seen big turnouts from other communities. Now the question is, are African-Americans going to turn out? And I think we're going to see historic numbers on election day, numbers that rival, I think, 2008. Michael, I want to get into that a little bit more because there was a view early on that even a big turnout, maybe that would uh, augur well for, for President Trump as well. And what we've seen around uh, some of these blue-collar areas, I want to get into that in particular because there is a feeling that in 2016 Hillary Clinton lost because she didn't have the blue-collar worker on board and you saw the collapse of the blue wall that uh, many uh, commentators had noted. This time around, do you think Joe Biden has done enough to woo back those blue-collar voters? Joe Biden has been consistent, and not just in this election, but over his entire career, uh, listening to blue-collar voters, supporting unions. And so I think that's resonating with them. But I think Hillary Clinton had a very different race. Donald Trump was not the incumbent. He was an unknown commodity, and he got a benefit of the doubt that he's not getting this time as the incumbent president. You pair that with his failed trade war with China, and I think you're really seeing blue-collar workers shift back to Biden, but also shift back to wanting a sense of normalcy. Being able to sit down at you know Thanksgiving dinner and not have fistfights over what the new tweet is or what the new policy is. I think that's really what's resonating across this country. 
Michael, a real pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks so much for staying up for us. Uh, Michael Starr Hopkins, uh, Democratic strategist and former campaign official for Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Uh, Later on in the morning, our colleagues on Street Signs will speak with the Republican strategist, Amanda Mackey. That's at 10.45 Central European time. We want to make it very clear to you that we are trying to offer you balance here from both sides of the political fence in the United States. And of course, a reminder for all of your election coverage and what it means for your money, make a point of staying tuned to CNBC through the night here. And ahead on CNBC.com, as the uh, election looms, we have more stories on there, in particular, uh, focusing on the political contributions made by the big tech billionaires. Uh, Very interesting to see where they are putting their money and who they feel will be better for them going forward in terms of regulation and management of the economy. So still to come on the program, we're going to catch up with ADECO's CFO, Corum Williams, after the recruitment giant beat profit and revenue expectations. That coming up after the break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. ADECO's third quarter earnings have beaten analysts' expectations across the board, but revenue was still down 14% in September. The Swiss staffing company said October volume showed business activity is improving. However, it warned that the recovery from the pandemic will be, quote, bumpy. Corum Williams joins us, the CFO of ADECO Group, and relocated last time we spoke to you at, uh, at Pearson. So, Corum, nice to see you again today. Let me ask you about the quarter because we've seen uh, extraordinary trends this year uh, from the second quarter where the pandemic hit to the third quarter where businesses reopened again. What did that mean on the staffing side? So good morning and it's nice to be back. Um, look, if I think about the quarter, it was for us a very strong performance in an uncertain environment. I, I think there are a couple of key points. I think the group showed real resilience and agility in navigating a difficult period. You know, our revenues were in line or ahead of the market in uh, in most regions, and we pivoted to where we saw demand at its strongest. And the second key point is that the strength of a, and balance of our portfolio is a real differentiator. So LHH, which is our career transition business, grew double digits. And if you took that together with pricing discipline and a real focus on gross margin, we delivered a sector-leading gross margin. And then thirdly, we managed our cost base with real agility and delivered a strong EBITA margin of 4.5%. So you're right, it is an uncertain time, but we feel we delivered a strong quarter. 
Let's get into some of that uncertainty because it feels as though it's all about guidance now at this point as we have further lockdowns to contend with. What evidence have you seen of any change in hiring intentions now as you've seen these national lockdowns declared? Well, I think it's really too early to have seen any impact from the most recent uh, lockdowns. But you know, if we step back and, and look at them and look at the experience in the second quarter, I think it's clear they are going to have an impact on the revenue recovery. Having said that, a number of sectors have learned lessons of how to operate in this kind of environment. You know, manufacturing in particular uh, has figured out how to operate safely and protect its workforce while continuing to produce. So, so we don't think you're going to see an impact or in, in the same magnitude as we saw in the spring. Uh, <clears throat> and if you think about what we've delivered in Q3, I think we're confident in our ability to navigate because we're part of the solution. We're an essential industry uh, and the performance that we've delivered shows that we're managing our way through the crisis. I was going to ask you if you've been practicing your Swiss German, but I'll get straight to the more important questions about uh, jobs. And I have grave concerns that once furlough schemes are ended, because they have to end at some stage, regardless of extensions we're seeing at the moment as well, that there is going to be a stunning, dare I say, a tsunami of job losses across Europe, across the United Kingdom, perhaps globally as well. Where do you stand on this? Um, so, uh, you know, I will be practicing my Swiss German, but it's not perfect just yet, I'm afraid. Um, but coming, coming to your point, which is an important one, this is an unprecedented crisis. And you know, I think governments have very sensibly adopted uh, policies in line with what the Germans did in 08 and 09. The Kurzarbeit has definitely helped because it provides a buffer between you know, the economic shock and the decisions to adjust resources. Um, but companies will have to adjust. Uh, and, you know, we are no exception to that. But people have to manage their cost base with their revenues. So I think we are in a difficult period. But from an ADECO perspective, we will partners and we really help them navigate their way through the crisis. Karen, you, you're, you're you know, newish to this kind of business compared with your, your, your previous role at Pearson as well. So we know that you're, you're learning about it in the same way we are in some ways as well. But in terms of the style of employment at the moment, do you anticipate that actually we're going to go for a period where companies just refuse to hire full-time, well-paid jobs and actually are going to go down the, uh, you mentioned Kurzart bite there as well, but go down the kind of the temporary route before they feel confident enough to give uh, well-paid full-time jobs again? We, we do think that the current environment favours flexible labour solutions because at the end of the day, demand is uncertain. Uh, people, as we've just discussed, are having to you know, cut their costs, adjust their resources to the new reality. And that favours um, flexible working solutions and favours a decade because, you know, we are obviously uh, able to, um, to do that. In fact, since the crisis began, we have put 150,000 associates back to work in, in flexible positions. So I think it shows you that even at this early stage of the crisis, people are focusing on flexibility. It's an important part of the labour market.
I'm afraid we've got to move on because we've got a whole host of numbers, but it's a real pleasure speaking to you. And one day we'll get to see you in the flesh again as well. And then you can practice your fantastic uh, Swiss German in, the, in person. But nice to see you, Carl. I'm glad you're settling in well, my friend. Right. OK, let's go on to take a look at Aramco figures, third quarter figures out from a whole host of oil majors over the last couple of weeks. Of course, this is the biggest of the lot. Net income has come in 11.8 billion US dollars. Second quarter dividend, 18.75 um, a billion dollars paid out in the third quarter. Let's see what they say. We see early signs. Or no, they don't say that. We saw early signs. That's very important, isn't it? Uh, saw early signs of recovery in the third quarter due to an improved economic activity, despite the headwinds facing global energy markets. And those energy markets, of course, have come off from around about a 43 bucks level on uh, Brent down to, well, 46, 47 handle, a big pardon, 37 handle at our low of the last week or so. A little bit of um, ground being given back again on Brent, as you can see on the screen, 38.83 as well. Um, cash flow from operating activities, $18.8 billion. Uh, we maintain our commitment to shareholder value by declaring a dividend of $18.75 billion. Um, uh, for the third quarter, of course, the major shareholder is uh, the kingdom of uh, Saudi Arabia. Third quarter CapEx was $6.4 billion. US dollars. Um, we're waiting for buyer figures, actually. Um, I haven't seen them hit my screen at the moment. So... Um, Oh, I understand. They're coming out in two seconds. OK, well, that's not much of an outlook. They've confirmed their outlook. There you go. The flash as we speak. Confirm their outlook. I do have nothing else from buyer at the moment as well, uh, apart from that single flash as well. well we're Karen, looking for further news add? around cost-cutting program, which uh, they've unveiled in the past month or so. They're talking about stepping up that program to reduce costs, given the, the headwinds that they're seeing. Uh, a couple more lines just crossing the tape now as Indeed. we talk about group sales. Yeah, sales down 5.1% to 8.5%. <laughs> billion euros give or take the change ebitda before special items well this is falling 21.4 percent wow 21.4 percent down on that ebitda uh, to 1.75 billion euros net loss of 2.744 billion euros impairment charges at crop science proceeds from divestment of animal health as well currency adjusted outlook group outlook again confirmed for 2020 challenging third quarter looks like it's the line Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.